0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, to today's question, COVID-19 related. Health officials have said hand washing is a critical step in reducing the spread of the virus. So we are asking you, how many times a day are you washing your hands now? You can vote 5 to 10, 10 to 20, or more than 50. Give us your vote on Twitter at CKNW or at Jill Reports or give the Buzz line a call. Let us know there. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. We have been talking, as you know, about COVID-19, the spread of the virus, and many of the measures put in place to stop the spread of the virus. Well, my next guest has been on the program many, many times, but we are usually talking about something law related, uh, impaired driving related. The last time we spoke, it was about about the suit drive for women for female law students that has been put on hold. Uh, and lawyer Kyla Lee is with us again. Kyla, thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you tweeted out, uh, we knew you were in self-isolation because you had recently traveled to the States. Uh, you came home, followed the rules, as uh, we've been told uh, over and over the past few days, went into self-isolation, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you've now been told you are likely or you are a presumptive case of COVID-19.
1: Yes, I um, developed after a couple days after I was in isolation, a really bad cough that got worse. I started to get chest pains and then a fever, and so I booked a, a cloud uh, doctor's appointment and virtually saw a doctor through my cell phone. And uh, <clears throat> she told me yesterday that basically, yeah, you have COVID-19. Just take, take it easy. <laughs> uh, so how are you feeling um, I'm mostly fine, other than this horrible cough and the the chest pain. And, you know, after hearing that, a little bit of increased anxiety. Um, I've had to stop reading the news
0: stories as much about it to try and calm my mind. <laughs> That's probably a good thing, uh, for sure. <laughs> um, you did follow all the rules, though, and you, you had the, the virtual doctor's appointment. So so just so people know, that your case then, even though the doctor has said yes, given where you traveled and the symptoms you have now, your case won't actually be counted, though, as one of BC's cases?
1: No, they're only counting the confirmed cases. So cases like mine, and there's likely lots of people in my situation, are just being told to self-quarantine and to stay away from the hospital unless um, you demonstrate a certain type of breathing, which the doctor showed for me on video, which would indicate a, a serious
0: problem. And did the doctor give you any indication, given the severity of your symptoms, how long you'll actually feel this way?
1: No, um, she basically said uh, to stay in quarantine, so not even go, you know, six feet from uh, from any other people, not to walk my dog or anything like that for um, 14 days from the onset of symptoms. Uh, she said that the cough may linger after that, but if it's been 14 days from the onset of the fever and everything, that I should be I should be good to go out and be in
0: the world again. So, because you don't get a test for this uh, to to confirm it that way, uh, because we're hearing then for for people that are getting tested, they have to have two negative tests to be cleared and to be considered then recovered. So you you won't get that either. You just have to kind of wait
1: yes, and just wait and, um, you know, make smart choices. Obviously, our, our office is shutting down and, and the courts are shut down. So thankfully, the type of work that I do won't require me to be interacting with the public for quite some time um, before uh, before things pick up again. So uh, I, I won't pose a risk if I'm going out um, before anything. Because I will not have anywhere to go. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. I feel bad. I can hear you coughing. So I don't want to put even more stress on your system. But I was reading you tweeted this out, and I think it's good. I know you you debated whether or not to put that information out there, but I think it is uh, good, and I'm, I'm I'm happy that you did. Just so people can learn a bit more about this and know that it is something like that doctors have been saying. Most people have mild symptoms. Uh, you did tweet though that you had chest pains that were quite bad. It was difficult to sleep. Uh, we can hear you with the cough, uh, and you have to keep moving around. Is that what doctors told you, or the doctor uh, in your consult said to to keep moving around to make sure things don't get worse? Um, it was
1: actually my sister, who's a nurse. Um, she said to keep moving around because the more that you're moving and, and breathing, the less likely it is that a pneumonia is going to settle in. And that's where the complication from the COVID-19 is coming from, is people getting these pneumonias that end up um, causing them to die or causing them to have serious, serious illness. So just um, I'm making sure to pace around my house while I'm on the phone and um, while I'm doing my work, I'm you know wandering around my yard with my dog and
0: that's about all I can do. Uh, Do you know then, uh, and I know the doctor said given where you had traveled and your symptoms, that's why you are a presumptive case. Do you know exactly where you were exposed to it?
1: I would imagine it was somewhere uh, in the airport, just based on the amount of time it typically takes for people to display symptoms, Um, in the airport on my way to the United States, so either the Vancouver airport or I had a layover in Chicago, um, so likely one of those two places.
0: And at the time, uh, were you doing things following the the procedures as far as hand-washing and being even more alert of of the, the situation?
1: Oh, absolutely. I was washing my hands. I was, you know, trying not to, you know, go too close to other people. Um, I'm generally an introvert anyway. So, you know, staying by myself and I was traveling alone into the United States. So I didn't have any travel companions or anything uh, as well. So I was doing my best. <laughs>
0: And I guess it goes to show it's just, I mean, we're, we're all trying to do those things now, but especially when you're flying and, and granted people aren't doing that now, which is good, but you probably noticed it too. It's very difficult to socially distance when you're on an airplane.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I had a person that was sitting next to me on the plane that was talking to me during the flight. And, you know, the plane itself is not exactly the cleanest place. Um, You know, airports, again, people are touching all sorts of things and you can't help but touch things in the airport. So it only takes, you know, one little tiny piece of bacteria for, for the infection to get into your body.
0: Uh, do you need anything i know some people have been reaching out on twitter wanting to know like you just said you can't leave your place you can't go out to walk your dog have you been able to secure uh, you have enough food or you're going to be okay for the rest of the quarantine
1: yes i'll be fine and i really appreciate everybody who's been reaching out it's been really really kind um for all those people to to offer to help me but i've got enough food um i've got uh, enough Netflix to keep me entertained. I've got work. um, And I have um, some people who've been dropping a few necessities off on my doorstep and then me coming out after they leave and picking them up. So I'm good.
0: All right. Well, get better. And we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us uh, about this. So stay safe, stay as well as you can, get better. And we look forward to talking to you when you're all healthy again. Okay, thank you. We are joined on the line by Dr. Mark Tyndall. He's a professor at the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. Dr. Tyndall, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Hi, my pleasure.
0: Uh, You work with a lot of people that are part of a very vulnerable part of the population. Uh, Last time I talked to you, it was about the opioid vending machine that had been installed on the downtown east side. Uh, What are your concerns with how people in those more vulnerable populations are dealing with COVID-19?
2: Yeah, well, I think it uh, really needs to be talked about how we have a coordinated uh, response to this because uh, as we're all being bombarded with uh, tons of information about this, uh, people who are, are living kind of on the margins and many people without stable housing uh, really have no way uh, to uh, protect themselves or, or do social distancing. So we really need to uh, think about how we, uh, how we respond to that population.
0: So how are people coping, do you think? Because you're right, we have heard that, that social distancing, if you're living on the street, or if you're living in somewhere like Oppenheimer Park, it's just it's simply not possible.
2: Yeah, well, um, it's uh, right now, there's really nothing much happening. So people are, um, you know, they, they're they talking a lot about it. Um, but really, there's no practical ways they can uh they can social distance and so uh, it's probably impractical to think that we can uh, house everybody in uh, you know in 48 hours but um, we need to get a consistent messaging out there and certainly um, we there are ways that we can uh, we can at least help to uh, to keep people a a little bit separated Um, but it all has the cost of uh, reducing services for the most part so there's so many people who rely on uh, social services in those communities and uh, as they're being cut back or even closed down uh, it really leaves people in a, a very desperate situation.
0: And so what do you th- anticipate to people will do when they are faced with that reduction in services? Well I mean
2: um, there's so many com- it's happening so quickly and uh, you know nobody would have predicted two weeks ago that we'd be in the situation we're in now I don't think so uh, you know um, I, I think there's a, We need to try to keep these services open as as, uh, much as possible. Um, Certainly even basic things like providing uh, uh, gloves and masks would be uh, very important and most social services don't have those things yet. And so we really need to get on that and uh, at least give some protection to people providing those services. Another huge element of this is that... um, the drug supply will also be, uh, uh, highly disrupted. So the, uh, even the illegal drug supply. So people be will become much more desperate to find, uh, drugs, uh, the price of uh, illegal drugs will go up. Um, contamination will go higher. And, uh, I think overdoses will, uh, will spike because of, uh, because of what's happening. So the, my focus, um, up till now has really been providing people a safe supply of drugs. So I think that we really need to uh, get on that quickly too and uh, allow people access to, uh, uh, to a safer uh, regulated supply of drugs.
0: And in the meantime, though, while we're dealing with that, what about paramedics as far as paramedics are the frontline workers that they are called to overdoses, they're often the ones who are in charge of bringing somebody back They're on the front lines. And I know very concerned on every call they're going to if they're being exposed now to COVID-19. Is that because they don't know exactly where it is? Will that change the response? Do you think?
2: Well, I, I hope not. I mean healthcare workers are still, you know, expected to uh to respond to these things. Uh there are measures, uh protective measures they can take. You know, at this time there's just so much unknown. We we don't even know how much uh, COVID is circulating in the community right now. Um, we don't, you know, testing hasn't been ramped up and many people would not even qualify for a test because they're, um, they're asymptomatic. So uh, so there's, you know, a lot's going to happen in the next uh, couple of weeks just to know what kind of situation we're dealing with as far as infections in that community. But right now, we really don't know. So a paramedic going to a call right now um there's a good chance there's the person they're responding to is not infected with COVID-19, but there, we really don't know how um, that's going to play out in the next few weeks.
0: Are there any concerns or have you seen any reduction in services when we're talking about uh, things like supervised uh, consumption sites?
2: Yeah, well, that's one of the first things that's been hit. So the number of uh, people allowed in at a time has been reduced by about half um, and, uh, and a couple have closed. So it's a, uh, yeah, so it's, it's hugely impacting uh, those services and they're, you know, they're very tight, uh, you know, they're uh, uh, very uh, tightly, uh, um, uh, people are tightly um, put into these positions. So um, there's really no way under the current uh, environment that we can, uh, we can keep people that separate unless we really reduce the number of people entering the facilities.
0: Which is, I would imagine it's difficult because there are still, I mean, it's still for some people a controversial service having it at all. And and perhaps for whatever reason, it's a group of people that doesn't get as much consideration or, or isn't afforded the same amount of empathy as, say, other groups. But it does sound like, like there are many, many people here as well who are being impacted by this.
2: Oh, it's cr- incredible. I mean, you know, we, we in Vancouver, the downtown east side has been quite... Infamous for the concentration of people uh, using drugs and uh, needing social uh, services, and uh, this population is uh, really going to feel the impact of the uh, the reaction that we've done and the response that we've we've had to this and so you know it's just happening so quickly. Um, a lot of people are really uh, getting trying to get together now just to find out what what is the what can we do, what is the best response and uh, certainly uh, making sure that people have as much protection as possible that are at the front lines is uh, is critical um and then uh re- really trying to ramp up services not to uh, reduce services is what uh, we really need to to focus on
0: uh, do you think we've done enough then as far as testing and knowing like you said it's it's unclear if if this virus is even in the community uh, is on is on the downtown east side have we done enough to to make sure that that is known or that that we know that
2: Well, it's really an evolving situation everywhere. So testing, uh, you know, that's really the focus of a a lot of the uh, the response right now is providing people uh, more testing. Right now, as it's been rolled out, um, it's really been um, mainly restricted to people with with uh, with symptoms or known exposures. Um, So there's been uh, uh, no uh, possibility at this point to do. Sort of mass screening. Um, but since it's an evolving thing, it's, it's you know, you could be negative one day and positive the next day. So uh, even doing, you know, blitz testing on everybody would only give us a partial answer um, of where the epidemic's going.
0: All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Dr. Tyndall, thank you again so much for your time.
2: Okay. Thanks for the call.
0: All right. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Good
0: morning. Uh, We have that uh, happening in California. We know in New York as well, non-essential workers being told to stay home. Uh, What exactly is happening?
3: Yeah, this is a, a growing trend now that's happening across the country. We've actually learned that uh, Illinois, the governor of Illinois, is set to announce sometime within the next hour or so uh, that the state is also going to put in place a statewide lockdown for its people. And this is all in a dramatic and drastic measure to try and slow down the spread of this virus, which is growing, uh, you know, while or spreading wildly uh, across this country with the cases reported cases quadrupling uh, just from the beginning of the week.
0: Well, and in that report, that's a pretty daunting number with saying that it's possible half the residents of California could become infected if something isn't done. And that's why they took this unprecedented step to try and stop the spread of the virus.
3: Absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about a state, which in essence is the fifth largest economy in the world, to have 25 million people potentially infected with a virus, which could take them out of the workforce for weeks possibly months if not longer uh and then you're left with what's you know with what's left in the state that is a huge blow not only to the state's economy not only to the u.s economy but to the entire globe think of the ramifications that follows from that from everything to uh you know the banking sector all the way up to hollywood this is a huge threat for just one state and i think that's why you're seeing other governors realize that they don't have uh uh uh, the ability to continue going forward if half of their state is no longer able to work
0: Absolutely. Uh, Do you anticipate then, as you mentioned, Illinois expected to be the next state to bring in these sweeping measures? Do you anticipate then we will see this from uh, more states?
3: Well, it is possible because remember, there is no federal guideline in place right now or no federal plan for a lockdown. The president had said that just last hour when he was in that uh, very testy back and forth uh, uh, press conference with his task uh, with his uh, uh, coronavirus task force. Uh, So states really are leaving this up to either county and local governments or to the governor. And that's why uh, things are so drastically different from one state to the next. Something like Texas doesn't have any kind of guidance in place. Same with parts of Oklahoma and parts of Tennessee. Uh, whereas then you have New York not putting a statewide lockdown, but they're going to stop esen- uh, non-essential uh, companies from being able to open up. So it's widely different from coast to coast. And it's unclear if this is going to become a widespread practice measure.
0: Uh, because it also sounds like th- those those key differences, like you said, in California, where it's an order to stay home, whereas in New York, uh, there might not be a, a good reason to go out. It's not like you're going out to a restaurant or you're going out to, to a place because they're all going to be closed. But it is going to, sounds like it's more of the honor system as far as people following uh, these new rules.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the governor of New York said that there could potentially be a fine that's put in place for these non-essential businesses that open, be it whether, uh, you know, a, a barber shop or a tattoo parlor. Uh, but there are other states who don't have that. It really is the onus is on the individual to just close your business and stay home and that poses further problems to uh, being able to stave off or potentially starve this virus from impacting areas that may not be feeling uh, the kind of impact that we're seeing in these hotspots across the U.S. Uh,
0: When we were talking about things closing down though, so grocery stores, uh, other services that are deemed essential will still be open, but I'm guessing in a place like California then, is it I mean, we haven't got to the state that we're seeing in a lot of European countries where you actually need a waiver to be out on the street to, to, to justify why you're out and moving around. But I mean, I suppose we keep hearing nothing's off the table that could happen.
3: It is possible that could happen. You have governors right now saying, "Don't leave your house if you don't need to." New York's governor saying, "Look, if you want to go outside, you want to do solitary exercise. That's okay. Just make sure that it's you by yourself." In California, they're saying, "Look, if you don't need to go outside, if you can exercise on your patio, on your roof, or in your living room, that's going to be the way to do it." Uh, but there is, uh, you know, there are talks in parts of California where uh, police may carry out some kind of uh, citation or a misdemeanor if you're outside, uh, potentially in a group or just. Just, you know, not not adhering to the orders that are in place. But again, this is going to be, uh, you know, discrepancies across the state, across the country, because there simply is no federal mandate that's been put in place.
0: Uh, Do you think there will be one then at some point?
3: Well, I mean, look, the president was asked that within the last hour, and he said there is no plan for a federal lockdown. And simply what that does is create more confusion across the country. There are governors that are looking to Washington right now for some kind of guidance as to what the best measure would be for their state, because it doesn't make sense for something like, uh, you know, St. Paul, Minnesota, which straddles uh, a second state. So you have half a city that's going to be able to stay inside and half a state a city that's going to be able to roam about as they want. That's why they're looking to the government to potentially get some kind of grand message put in place. The president simply says, though, he wants to leave this like he's doing with trying to deal with Brooke for medical supplies simply leave it up to the states to do their own battle uh,
0: you mentioned medical supplies because that's been one a concern as well we we're hearing uh from uh, mario cuomo the ventilators uh, saying that yes they do need more and they're uh, giving incentives for businesses to manufacture these so what else are you hearing about medical supplies
3: Absolutely. I mean, that's, we heard that from, from Cuomo earlier today saying that there would be incentives if somebody could, if, if companies will be able to manufacture at a faster rate these masks and these ventilators. But it's interesting when you heard Vice President Mike Pence talk just, you know, last hour during that briefing, he made mention of the fact that U.S. stockpiles in emergency back rooms, there are more than 20,000 ventilators that are sitting there waiting to be used. As you're hearing from local healthcare systems that are stretched to their limits say, we have potentially only one ventilator. Ventilator for a hospital with 300 rooms right now, and the government is sitting on this. Now the government says they're going to be going out making a procurement of uh, of 95 million masks that will they'll be able to hand out to uh, to uh, to states. But we're also hearing that as states go out to these companies to purchase these masks, oftentimes they're being outbid by the federal government, who's making their own purchases and then putting things into emergency stockpiles. So that's why you see this stress on the healthcare system because you have competing interests from the state and from the government.
0: All right, uh, Reggie, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, taking a look at what is happening with COVID-19 around the world, and we've been talking about Italy, one of the hardest hit countries, soldiers now being brought in to help enforce the lockdown in that country. And today we learned that 627 new deaths were reported in Italy. That is the largest single-day death toll anywhere in the world since the virus outbreak began. So let's go back to the European Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail, Eric Reguly, who was on with us earlier in the week. He is joining us again. Eric, thank you so much for being here once again.
4: I'm happy to be on, Jill.
0: Uh, what is happening in Italy right now? It's
4: We're losing... Um... Optimism at the moment. Uh, the, there's no sign yet that the curve is flattening, as they say. As you mentioned, there's a record high number of deaths at 627 deaths. Um, the new cases are up just short of 6,000. The total caseload is 47,000. Now, almost most of this, the vast majority, is, is centered in the north. It's clearly out of control there. The rest of the country, I'm in Rome, uh, not too bad. The hospitals in Rome are not overwhelmed, but they could be. We're worried about the hospitals in southern Italy like Sicily, Reggio, Puglia, which they're poor regions and uh, their hospitals don't have the capacity or the resources of other hospitals in Italy
0: and what is causing it when you talk about that region the lombardy region that even with the measures the lockdown that was brought in do we know why it is still continuing to hit that region so hard
4: yeah because the the lockdown up north happened a bit too late probably you know a week and a half or two weeks too late and what what they were ha- what was happening up north is that initially they didn't have their systems and their controls right so Anyone with a fever walked into a hospital. They were not specifically told at first to stay home. So you had people walking into the hospital infected and infecting, you know, people in the hospital who in turn infected other people. And, you know, this is, you know, it's logarithmic. You know, one infects two, two infects four, eight, 16, and it just keeps on going. And that's what's happened up north in Rome they were much more careful. The uh, the two Chinese tourists who tested positive, the first ones in Italy uh, tested positive uh, early last month. They were those two were, were locked down immediately and put in isolation. So it hasn't spread in other parts of the country as it has up north.
0: I read a very uh, sad quote saying that in that region, that there were so many fatalities that they were no longer counting the dead. Uh, it just seems unreal that that's something that's happening there right now. Uh, are there more measures being brought in or what is being done now to, to protect healthcare workers while they continue to deal with these numbers?
4: Well, there, there's a plea um, around the world for uh, doctors, nurses, medical gear, respirators. Uh, they're, they're running short of everything. Um, as of yesterday, I don't have today's figures. 1,400 um, medical workers were had tested positive, 13 had died. I mean, this is tragic. Um, and of course, these medical workers, when they test positive, they can't work. So there's a, there's a. It doesn't mean they're going to die. you know, the vast majority of them won't. They're very healthy, um, but you have to replace them anyway in hospitals. They're, I don't know what else they can do except uh, except um, make sure they've got uh, the proper protective gear. Um, I mean, they're exhausted. It's 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 absolutely tragic
0: up there absolutely and and you're right and uh, we're seeing cases around the world where the majority of people do recover from this but the figures being released out of Italy show that i think it was something like 86% of the fatalities are the elderly uh, in many cases elderly people are passing away by themselves at home i mean it is just it's just horrific hearing uh, some of the these updates
4: yeah, and the, the army up north in uh Lombardy, um, which is the area around Milan, um, and the towns north of Milan, Bergamo, uh the, the army's been called in and they're you know, they're shipping coffins into hospitals and shipping bodies out and there's no funerals. Uh the 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 bodies go right to graveyards or to crematoria, uh, so the families don't even get to say goodbye to their families, uh to the to their to their loved ones, uh, in a lot of cases, they're giving the patients who are near death, they're giving them iPads so they can record their their last messages to their family, and that's it. Um, I mean, they are counting the bodies. I mean, that's how they I mean, the, the, the statistics in Italy are pretty thorough. I mean, they're, they're, there's updates all the time, um, but the numbers are just going in the wrong direction. Though I suspect, you know, we all hope that Look, there are parts of Italy that were locked down really tight, tightly. There's a little town called Vaux, Vo, V-O, near uh, Venice, which was locked down t- totally tight. And every single person was tested, and they've had no new, um, no new cases in recent days.
0: Hmm. Uh, what does this mean for the lockdown, then, as far as uh, the country was put under lockdown, the date was given of April 3rd? Uh, is it a pretty safe bet that that is going to be extended?
4: Oh, no, it has been extended. Uh, Giuseppe Conte, the prime minister, said last night, uh, so that's Thursday night, um, that the April 3rd date is not, um, is not going to be the end date. He did not give a new date. There's talk now that the schools will not reopen this year. Uh, they've been closed for several weeks now. And... Um, I, you know we just that's one of the things that's caused the anxiety among all of us including me i just don't know when i can get out of this house again um it could be we've been in lockdown two almost two weeks now full lockdown in rome longer up north uh it could be another month you know and it's 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 very very stressful um and we can go out to shop and that's it
0: used to be able to go out you know to, to have a jog to uh, to take a walk and they're, now they're clamping down that as well so you can go out uh, you're allowed to go to a grocery store or that, and do you have to take a waiver, or how does that work?
4: Yeah, you have to take a signed waiver. It's a government waiver to declare that uh, a you're not you have not tested positive, that you don't have a fever, and you have to tick off while you're going out i mean shopping is 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 a necessity I mean they don't want people starving to death. I mean there's look there's lots of food in Italy, all the deliveries are happening. I have seen no sign whatsoever, panic buying of anything. The um, Italians seem very calm, actually, even though they are, you know, frustrated and tired and, and, and a bit stressed. But they're calm. You oh. know, they they've been through worse in this country, and this is a country that thinks in centuries, not you know,
0: not years or months. All right. uh, Eric, we will leave it there. And effective today, if you are somebody who uses the bus, TransLink says it is suspending fare collection on buses, also asking people to please board and uh, get off that bus through the rear doors. And that's as they try to promote and make sure everybody is using social distancing. Let's bring in Ben Murphy. He's a spokesperson with TransLink and he's on the line with us now. Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, So it's in effect now, is it, that uh, people uh, are being encouraged to use the rear doors and uh, there is no fare collection?
5: Correct. It started today, uh, so we're asking customers to use the rear doors uh, when boarding on those conventional buses, and that's really to promote social distancing, uh, particularly for transit operators. Uh, So uh, that started this morning, and that's going to be in place indefinitely. Obviously, we'll continue to monitor this situation, which as uh, you would know, is evolving very rapidly uh, and we'll make decisions in due course about uh, revising that uh, when appropriate.
0: All right. And for people that need the, the bit of extra help, whether they're with a stroller or in a wheelchair or a scooter, they can still board at the front?
5: That's right. So customers who need mobility assistance can still use the front doors. Uh, and of course, that's entirely appropriate. So, um for those customers, uh, they do not need to use the back doors, but fair collection will still not be uh, in place for those customers either.
0: All right. So what is uh, revenue or what is ridership like right now, uh, given that so many people are staying at home?
5: Yeah, we've seen a very, very sharp decline in ridership it really started late last week that we started to notice the difference up until that point it had been relatively stable but we saw i think it was about last wednesday or thursday there was a seven percent drop and then every day it sort of continued from there culminating in tuesday where we saw a 52 percent drop in ridership now in many ways that's a good thing because it means that people are of course heeding the advice of health officials Staying home, they're not going to work, and so that means less transit use. Uh, it also helps with social distancing because, of course, on buses and trains, I'm sure you've seen many of the photos and videos, uh, there's a lot of room, and people, uh, from what I've seen on the system, are actually spacing out quite well. Uh, so it's all um, very welcome on that front, of course, in the COVID 19 context. It will down the track create some significant financial problems for us but we'll have to address that when we get there right now the priority is COVID-19 and dealing uh, with this crisis.
0: Absolutely Uh, are people being advised though and and I've noticed that too even walking to and from work uh, I've been looking at the buses and people do seem like they're spaced apart but are they being encouraged by the drivers or is there signage at all telling people to maintain that distance if they can?
5: Yeah, we've launched an education campaign uh, and so people will start to notice uh, that there is signage at stations, uh, there's online material as well, social media, uh, telling people to space out when on a bus, on sea bus, on trains uh, and also the other message which is really important is for employees. Um, so if you're um, coming onto a bus or coming onto any um any transit service, just give some extra space between employees as well. Um, so social distancing applies to, applies to everyone. So we've put that messaging out uh, to try and encourage that as much as possible.
0: Uh, do you know, are there any TransLink employees who are off work who have contracted COVID-19?
5: Not that I'm aware of, no. Um, I believe there are some, some cases of self-isolation following trips and so forth, but uh, there's no confirmed cases that I'm aware of.
0: All right. Uh, you mentioned revenue as well, and I know we're dealing uh, with the outbreak and uh, every industry is impacted by this. Uh, but not that long ago, when we were dealing with job action at TransLink, uh, there was the the question of if drivers stopped taking in fares, the impact that would have on the 10-year TransLink plan. So is it a safe assumption that this is going to have an impact on transit expansion in the future?
5: Look, it's a little early to say exactly how this is going to all look, but it's fair to say that this is going to have a very significant financial impact. I mean, we collect, on average, between 50 and $60 million in fares every month. It is a big part of our operating budget. And so the longer this goes on, particularly with bus fares suspended, uh, the more that cost is going to build. Now, uh, there has been discussions around at some point whether there's going to be, you know, financial support from uh, funding partners. Um, Obviously, those discussions are in really early stages because (laughs) right now we're focused on dealing with the immediate issue. Uh, But yes, there are going to be significant financial challenges. We're going to have to deal with exactly what that looks like and what impacts that will have It's just a little early to say at this stage. Uh,
0: With ridership down uh, 52% and likely continuing to drop then, has TransLink reduced service?
5: Uh, We are looking at that actually at the moment. Uh, So not as yet, but on the bus system, we are taking a good look at that. We may have more to say on that uh, either today or in coming days because what we're seeing is there are some bus routes where buses are completely empty. Uh, or there's you know one or two people, so we're considering whether we might be able to reduce some frequencies on some routes. We of course wouldn't touch the ones where um, there are you know a significant or reasonable amount of people using them. Uh, but when you have empty buses rolling around the city, uh, that's not really a, a good situation for anyone. Uh, no. So we are considering that at the moment, um, and we may have more more to say on that.
0: Because right, if you if you don't even have weekend. Uh, capacity, you would think there would not be a reason to continue service of the full work week.
5: That's right. I mean, other agencies have started to reduce service. We don't want to reduce too much service, though. I mean, the thing is, we, we actually want extra capacity because it helps with social distancing. So it's a little bit of a balancing act. If we were to do some reductions, they'd be quite modest. Uh, and that have to be very targeted as well. Uh, so that's that's something we're looking at. Um, the other side, of course, as mentioned, you don't want empty buses and, um, you know, wasting resources and fuel unnecessarily.
0: Will there be layoffs then if service is reduced?
5: Look, we're not looking at that at this stage. Um, so, you know, this is a situation we're taking it day by day. But at, at this stage, layoffs are, are not part of our short-term plan.
0: All right. And just uh, so people know this as well, the suspension of fare collection is buses only. Other modes of, of transportation under TransLink, uh, such as um, SkyTrain and such, those are still kind of operating as normal, still with the idea of social distancing for people that use them?
5: Correct. And, and and just to sort of explain that, I mean, the suspension of fares is largely an operational factor because we are just not set up to take fares at the rear doors Uh, so cash fares for instance you wouldn't be able to pay at the rear doors so it's more a a practical uh, policy Um, so that that's why the bus system is seeing that change whereas other modes uh, remain uh, with current fare structures in place.
0: All right well Ben we will look to get more information uh, in the coming days as things are changing so frequently but thank you so much for joining us today appreciate that.
5: Thanks
0: Jill. Let's move back to finances because there has been a lot of talk about what is going to happen with layoffs and with the economy grinding to a much slower pace because of COVID-19. If you are a Canadian considering a deferred payment, what does that actually mean? Well let's bring in Richard Moxley. He is one of Canada's leading authorities when it comes to personal credit and he is also the author of The Credit Game and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Uh, what do uh, people need to th- think about? Because uh, I think there are way more people today compared to a few weeks ago thinking about this idea of deferring a payment. So what does that involve?
6: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of talk and hype about the deferred payment. However, there's uh, some, some caution around that uh, that needs to be explained uh, that unfortunately isn't getting as much press as it should. Uh, so the biggest problem is that with a deferred payment, Although the representative that you spend hours to, uh, to finally get a hold of, uh, most likely they'll say, okay, you're, you're okay, we'll defer that, whether it's a mortgage, loan, uh, utility, credit card payment, whatever it is that you're asking to be deferred, that can happen. But uh, the system is all or generally uh, updated with Equifax and TransUnion automatically. And so even though the customer service rep is marking on there that that you can defer that payment or the banks have just kind of thrown in these processes or systems that will allow them to defer a payment that doesn't mean that their system is going to recognize that deferred payment as uh, like as a okay, uh, it might just show up as a late payment.
0: Would there be something being done then because we are in such an unprecedented situation, would there be something, or could there be something done then so it doesn't automatically look like that?
6: And that's one thing that, uh, why I wanted to get the message out in regards to how to protect yourself, because when there's an error or something happening in this, uh, situation, uh, It can be disputed or it can be uh, fixed. Uh, But the problem is, is that if you go and see an error on there, uh, I think the first step is letting people know that there could potentially be a late payment showing up on your credit report if you decide to defer or need to defer a payment. So the first thing is be aware of it. Uh, The second is when you are talking to the banks or the lenders and asking for this deferred payment. The key is, is try and get something in writing to confirm that they are actually agreeing with that. Because after the fact, once all the mess is done and and things have settled down, if you're going to try and fix that with Equifax and TransUnion or or get something confirmed or changed, then it's essentially he said versus she said. Um, So the, the Equifax and TransUnion... Aren't going to know whether you had permission <laughs> or, or you just didn't pay. Uh, so, essentially, if you have something in writing to confirm that they are okay with that deferred payment, then that gives you a lot more credibility or your dispute a lot more credibility than just someone else who doesn't have anything in writing.
0: Right. And, and much more in this case, uh, smarter, I would guess, to deal with that upfront rather than having to deal with something that comes up as an error.
6: Yeah, when you're spending a couple hours already trying to talk with the banks, uh, it's best if you already have that in, in the you know conversation while you're on the phone. Uh, now, some of the lenders and banks are, because they're so inundated with all these calls and, and requests, aren't able to really put anything in writing. So the other thing that you can do is you can try and record the call if you have the uh, ability to do that but at least get the employee number or the service rep's name and then write the time and day that you've called and collect all that information and make sure that you keep it on file just in case something does happen uh, because to try and remember or to try and collect this information a month or two months or three months down the road is is going to be challenging. So it's much easier if you're just already prepared. Uh, You're going to save yourself a lot of headache
0: All right. Great advice. Uh, Richard, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: You're very welcome.
0: Hey, We've been talking a lot about the financial woes a lot of people are facing and are anticipating because of the COVID-19 pandemic layoffs in many areas. Earlier today, we heard about Air Canada laying off thousands of employees. Uh, That's just one company that's been impacted by this. Uh, We've also heard that BC Housing has brought in a moratorium on evictions. Now, that only covers certain types of housing but they did make that move because of the COVID-19 pandemic earlier on in this program as well we were speaking about uh, the idea of rental protections and the community legal assistance society joined us to talk about uh, the fact that they would like to see as well a moratorium on evictions well let's bring in David Hutniak he is the CEO of Landlord BC and he joins us on the line now David thank you so much for joining us
7: yeah, thanks for inviting me.
0: Uh, we're hearing these calls for a moratorium on evictions, particularly because many people are anticipating financial difficulty in the weeks and likely months to come. Uh, what is the response from Landlord BC?
7: Well, absolutely. I mean, there's huge uh, challenges here, and we've been, you know, liaising with uh, our members and really the broader uh, rental housing community to. You know, make sure landlords, um, you know, uh, demonstrate the uh, appropriate uh, degree of compassion here and, and communicate with their residents to, you know, gauge, uh, first of all, whether or not they're all healthy and uh, and safe. Uh, uh, needless to say, uh, you know, we're, we're likely going to start seeing or hearing about some uh, effective, uh, affected residents who will need to self-isolate. And also, you know, just to have a conversation, uh, it's, uh April is coming up and if people are going to have difficulty paying, you know, trying to find some ways to, to accommodate. In, ter- in terms of, uh, I mean, that's, I think we, be candid here. This is uh, unfolding uh, to, to clearly be something that's longer term here. Um, it's, you know, multiple months, I think is fair to, to say. And so, uh, you know, we've been really, uh, you know, talking uh, with the provincial government, and uh, we've been a partner ever since they came into power. We continue to be, and I think, uh, you know, really, the our 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 sector is mostly mom and pop, small landlords. They're really really scared right now, and and so, uh, the province uh, has to find sort of a balanced approach here and uh you know a moratorium on on evictions for non-payment of rent is hugely problematic uh for our sector uh our 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 members and, and landlords more broadly uh, you know require this this cash flow mm-hmm. um but we also understand that renters face uh, cash flow crunch here too so so really the we're we're what we've been trying to work on here with the province is to find a solution of how to get money rent money in the hands of renters, and that's that's really uh, very much our focus.
0: So, and i put that question when we were talking uh, about this earlier in that it's one thing to call for a moratorium on evictions but uh, and and it wasn't really clear what the answer was because that either means that people don't get evicted for not paying their rent and the rent doesn't go to the landlord or it means the province sets up some kind of rent bank or some kind of mm-hmm. assistance program that goes to the renters and that uh, ensures that the money still does go to the landlords
7: well, yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, this is the thing. Um, you know, that's, this this is a, this is much more complicated than simply saying, you know, a moratorium on all evictions. Obviously, you don't want anybody to lose their homes during this period of time, or any time for that matter, but particularly now. So, so you know, we were very much uh, espousing uh, a rent bank uh, approach. I mean, you know, we have a net, small network of of rent banks right now, but you know, they don't have the loan capital or really the, you know, infrastructure to handle anything of this nature. But uh, the the rent bank, you know, is these are repayable loans, but uh, which I'll talk about in a second here. But it's a very fast way to get money uh, to pay rent. And and the way they're structured is, you know, this can be made very quick and dirty uh, in terms of an approval process. And then the money actually goes is paid to the landlord. So there's the profits can have real confidence that, you know uh if they're providing uh cash for rent that the rent is paid, and so it really helps the that whole the whole uh you know system basically have that uh, sort of continuity and, and confidence that a you know the rent is paid and b the the individual has the home has their home so uh it it negates the need for uh, uh you know for uh um any kind of eviction around non-payment of rent uh, in that sense. Um, but uh, the issue is, you know, how do they do this logistically? And, and, and the other opportunity we have here is the income assistance network of offices we have. And, and you know, I have uh, spoken to someone who with in sort of inside knowledge, they actually have forms that they could use with slight modification, and they have skilled workers there who know how to manage this. So we actually have a system... Uh, that is obviously not perfect, and and there's issues around everything. I mean, that's that's what a crisis is, is all about. But uh, we believe that uh, a rent bank could be implemented very quickly. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, sort of doing getting into the into the details, but making sure the money is there. And, and I just one other thing I'll just add quickly is that so what it would allow here is that uh, those who need it would get it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there's many renters you know, are fortunate that, you know, they, they have the wherewithal to pay the rent uh, or they have, um, you know, employers who are providing them a the continuous to support, et cetera. And so, you know, if you put a moratorium on evicting for non-payment of rent and, and then those supports are, you know, more targeted, uh, you know, then in effect, there would be a whole bunch of folks who perhaps, you know, have other other uh, options to, uh, to uh, you know, fall under this, this, this you know, widespread or broad uh, moratorium. So I think, like I said, there's a lot of moving parts here, and everybody needs to think this through. But the rent bank is clearly uh, a solution, and like I said, we're hugely supportive of it. And, uh, you know, it's obviously going to help renters, but it's also going to ensure, uh, you know, landlords, particularly small landlords, can keep uh, keep providing the homes they provide.
0: Right. And when you mentioned the smaller landlords talking about people either renting out uh, you know, basement suites or, or smaller apartment buildings, uh, it does seem like that's more of a measured approach than the idea of if you were to do a moratorium on evictions, but also brought in a moratorium on foreclosure, because that's something else that has been uh, suggested.
7: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, certainly, you know, is, you know, put a whole bunch of capital into the into the system to to you know support banks basically on that front. But the, the reality is that banks, you know, they said yes, we're going to uh, the, the big six banks. Yes, we're you know we're going to uh, on a case by case basis you know consider this situation and you know defer payments, what have you. But you know that's all repayable. You know, it's not, this is no free money for anybody, and it's, there's no guarantee that they're necessarily, you know, going to provide that that uh, support. So, so it's uh, you know this this has to be taken into account here. At, it, there there are people who, you know, heavily rely on on that additional income to basically pay the mortgage that they have, and uh, you know, you know, talking to uh, so many smaller landlords, and you know, they're leveraged to the hilt know, you know do should we feel sorry for them well that's that's your everyone's individual decision but that's the reality that's to what it's cost to get into a into a a home here and but by the same token these people are providing critically important rental housing so you know we can't just uh we we need to protect both renters and landlords in this situation in in my view
0: all right we will leave it there david thanks so much for your time today
7: yeah thanks for reaching out take care